I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. When Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24, 2022, there was a swift reaction from the United States, Japan, and European nations with the imposition of trade sanctions, financial sanctions, and sanctions against Russian oligarchs. Early on, these seemed to have punishing effects on the Russian economy. The forecast for Russian economic growth went from 2.5% before the invasion to minus 10% in its immediate wake, and the ruble fell in value by more than 30%. But since then, growth forecasts have recovered and the ruble is stronger than it was before the invasion. In a recent article in Foreign Affairs, Professor Christopher Miller my colleague at Tufts Fletcher School, wrote that the initial impact of sanctions has been less than the West hoped for or the Russian feared. But he also discusses in that article the longer-run corrosion that sanctions will have on the Russian economy. Chris is a historian of international politics and economics with a focus on Russia. He is a prolific scholar and the author of many articles in three books including the 2018 publication, Putinomics, Power and Money in a Resurgent Russia. Chris, thanks for joining me once again on Econofact Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. Chris, when we last spoke, that was in March of 2022, you mentioned that the Russian economy is the 11th largest in the world. The Russian economy is not expected to shrink by 10% this year, as was initially thought after the invasion of Ukraine, but its prospects still don't look particularly good. That's right, Michael. Russia's economy is still going to shrink fairly substantially this year, probably around 5%, depending on where energy prices uh, go over the coming months. Uh, inflation has spiked uh, to double-digit rates, although it's coming down to uh, some extent over the last couple of months. And sanctions and export controls are having an effect, um, less dramatic than initially thought, um, but still there's a pretty dramatic effect on the Russian economy and it's felt unevenly across Russia with, um, with different impacts on different parts of Russian society and different sectors of the economy. And of course, from the perspective of the war, the worst effects are not in economic terms, but rather on the uh, several tens of thousands of Russians who have been killed in the fighting, uh, in addition to many Ukrainians, of course, as well. Let's pick up on the way the sanctions are affecting different segments of Russian society. The most high-profile set of sanctions are on oligarchs, members of the Russian legislature, the Duma, and others in President Putin's circle. What are these sanctions? So the U.S., uh, alongside allies in Europe and the U.K., have imposed fairly strict sanctions that prohibit many members of the Russian elite, both members of the government, uh, officials and also business elites from traveling 
to the West, but also from interacting with Western financial systems, owning assets, for example, or conducting bank transfers. And this has uh, really uh, cut out a large number of Russian elites from interacting with the global economy, because once you're uh, subjected to tough uh, U.S. financial sanctions, it becomes very difficult to deal with almost any economic actor or any bank uh, across the world. How leaky do you think these sanctions might be, Chris? Well, there's no doubt that there are leaks. For example, if uh, an oligarch is sanctioned, they can often transfer their assets to uh, their spouse or to their children and still exercise de facto control, even if they're not uh, legally in charge. There's also ways you can set up shell companies and jurisdictions that don't provide the financial transparency needed to track uh, ultimate ownership. But at the end of the day, I think it's pretty clear that the individual sanctions do have a really substantial effect on people who are placed on sanctions list, which is why there's uh, such an extensive effort underway by people who are under sanctions to lobby and get themselves taken off sanctions lists. So if these sanctions are having an effect, I imagine one of the goals of the sanctions is for the oligarchs to put political pressure on President Putin. Is that a reasonable expectation? Well, it's probably not that likely. If you think of uh, oligarchs, they're people who accumulated economic power in Russia, but they've been able to hold on to their assets, their businesses or their financial assets uh, only insofar as the security services who actually run the country have let them. Uh, and I think the oligarchs know that if, they're, uh, if, if they begin expressing too many political beliefs or especially uh, any sort of disagreement with the government's policy, their status as an oligarch comes into question because it's not difficult at all for the government to take their assets, to jail them, to exile them, or even in some cases to kill them. Uh, so it's unlikely that pressure is going to be placed on the government from the economic elite. I think much more likely if there is pressure placed on the Kremlin or on Putin personally, it comes from the security services rather than from oligarchs. So the sanctions on the assets of individuals is combined with other financial sanctions, such as the exclusion from the SWIFT system. We have an Econofact memo on that that was published early on after the invasion, but can you explain what the SWIFT sanctions are and what other financial sanctions are, please? Yeah, that's that's right. The SWIFT sanctions, as well as sanctions on individual banks, have been quite impactful on Russia. Um, SWIFT is a, a messaging system that lets banks communicate with each other uh, as they undertake transactions. And uh, a number of big Russian banks, but not all, have been cut out of SWIFT, which is based in the European Union and therefore subject to EU rules. And in addition to that, potentially even more impactfully, the US and the EU have blacklisted a number of big Russian banks, making it illegal to undertake certain types of transactions uh, with them. And many of the biggest Russian banks, with the exception of Gazprom Bank, which is the bank that uh, transfers much of the payments for Russian gas and oil, uh, have been subjected to these tough sanctions. And this has created huge problems for anyone doing business with Russia or anyone in Russia trying to do business with the outside world, because many of the banks they used to make payments via uh, are now um, unable to transact with uh, suppliers or customers in the West. And so when we've seen disruptions to Russian supply chains or Russian trading relationships, it's often been because it's now very difficult for uh, Russian firms to transact with the outside world um, unless they're going through a very small number of banks or dealing uh, with a specific set of products whose uh, transactions are still allowed by Western rules.
One of the most striking actions in terms of the sanctions was the freezing of the assets of the Russian Central Bank that were held outside of Russia. This led to a collapse of the ruble at the outset of the war, as I mentioned in the introduction, but subsequently it recovered. That's right. And there were a number of steps that Russia took to support the ruble. And, and one key step the West took that actually had the um, somewhat unexpected effect of supporting the ruble. On the side of the Russian government, the central bank imposed sweeping capital controls that limited the ability of Russians to move money outside the country or uh, to undertake conversions between rubles and dollars, and it also hiked interest rates pretty dramatically, um, slowing economic activity, but also uh, encouraging Russians to hold their savings in rubles. And this had a uh, had the effect of supporting uh, the ruble uh, in the um, in the early months of the war. But probably even more importantly, the capital controls were the fact that Russian imports collapsed. Uh, Russia uh, generally runs a current account surplus, but it. Uh, spiked higher uh, in the the months since the war began because although Russia is still exporting pretty substantial sums above all in um, oil, which is Russia's uh, largest export in dollar terms, Russia's imports have collapsed partially because of the financial disruptions that we previously discussed, partially because many of the goods that Russia used to import are now illegal to sell to Russia under Western export controls partially because many Western firms simply pulled out of the Russian market and stopped selling directly to Russia. And so Russia is spending only half as much money on imports as it did before the war. As a result, Russia's uh, is, is, its current account has shot higher into surplus, and that's taken a lot of pressure off the ruble. So we've actually seen the ruble appreciate to a level above where it was when the war began, um, precisely because of this uh, fairly unique dynamic with uh, Russia's balance of payments. Uh, and in fact, right now, the ruble is um, higher than the Russian government would like. Uh, the Russian government's been trying to find ways uh, to push down the value of the ruble because they're actually dissatisfied with, uh, with the current level. So the current account that you're mentioning, another name for that is a trade balance. So they're running a big trade surplus, which is not a good thing in this case. Um, trade surpluses can be good or bad. In this case, it's not a good thing. You've discussed already this issue of the sale of Russian oil and natural gas. How important are these hydrocarbon exports to Russia? And have sanctions affected the country's ability to export oil and natural gas? Sanctions were designed to target Russia's long-term oil and gas production, um, but not to impact the short term. Uh, and this was part of how both Europe and the U.S. Um, set out to sanction Russia. The rationale was that Russia was a crucial provider of um, oil and gas uh, to European, but also to global markets, and that so insofar as Russian supply could be kept online in the short term, it would give Europe time to adjust to a longer term without uh, such reliance on Russian energy. Um, and there was a logic uh, to this strategy, uh, but it meant that Russia would continue to make substantial, um, uh, would, would continue to receive substantial revenue from its sales of oil and gas uh, during the initial phases of sanctions. And that's indeed what we've seen over the past couple of months. Russia's begun to sell its oil at some discount to 
global benchmark prices around 20 or $30 a barrel cheaper uh, than uh, most other countries sell oil. But nevertheless, um, because of where the price of oil is today, Russia is making more or less the same amount of money it made as last year in terms of selling oil. Uh, in the long run, Western sanctions will have an impact on Russian oil production because it's become illegal to invest in certain types of uh, complicated um, oil drilling projects, for example, which is designed to reduce Russia's long-run production. Um, when it comes to gas, the West imposed a similar strategy, sanctioning the long run, but leaving the short run much less impacted. But Russia has responded with its own uh, uh, measures that function like sanctions, restricting the supply of natural gas to Europe, such that right now Russia is supplying only a tiny fraction of what it normally does uh, to Europe uh, in advance of, of the winter season, which is when Europe needs more gas for heating. Now, this is this is a Russian sanction rather than an EU sanction that's restricting the supply of gas. Uh, but the result has been to drive up gas prices and uh, energy prices more broadly across Europe as, as Europe struggles to find the energy it needs for this winter. So the idea of that, of course, is that by Russia doing that, they want to make it very painful for Europe to have these sanctions and hope to break down the solidarity. But moving on to other kinds of trade sanctions, in your foreign affairs article, you say these other sanctions on trade are probably more important, especially in the long term. For example, parts from America, Europe, or Canada are vital for the maintenance of Russian planes, and we're seeing planes grounded and the grounded planes cannibalized for parts. There are ways to get around this, I imagine, but only for a while and not forever. What do you think the ultimate effect of these sanctions will be? I think it's already clear that the manufacturing sector in Russia is going to be among the worst hit by Western sanctions. We've seen this in aviation, as you mentioned, where there's really a small number of producers of advanced aviation equipment, and they're largely in Western countries that are imposing export controls on Russia. In automobiles, we've seen uh, really dramatic declines in Russian car production. At the peak of the fall earlier this summer, Russia was producing less than 10% of the normal number of cars it would produce. And uh, to adjust to a world with fewer Western components and to less access to uh, Western expertise in the auto sector, Russia's legislature has been passing rules, for example, allowing cars without airbags or anti-lock brakes, um, types of technologies that Russia relies on imports to provide. And so across manufacturing, we're going to see, we're already seeing and we'll continue to see disruptions to supply chains, to component parts, um, and also in the medium and longer term, disruptions to the types of advanced tooling that you need to outfit factories. Most of the machine tools that Russia uses in its factories, for example, are imported from Europe or Japan. Uh, and these are sophisticated machinery that can't be imported from anywhere else. The only providers are in uh, advanced economies. And so in the long run, I think this is going to be quite devastating for the Russian manufacturing sector because there simply aren't replacements that they can acquire from countries that aren't participating in the sanctions. Going back to what I raised earlier about the distributional effects of this, how this is going to affect people who work in industries. And as you also point out in your Foreign Affairs article, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but Monogorods, how do you pronounce that? That's pretty good. Oh, okay. Well, thanks. I had a, a Russian grandmother. Um, so these Monogorods are um, places where there's basically a one industry town, and these are going to be devastated by this. 
Can you talk a little bit about the distributional consequences of manufacturing being hurt very badly in Russia by the sanctions? Yeah, it's it's a key issue, and there's there's a geographic aspect to this, and then there's a um, a labor force structure aspect. In terms of the geography, the the way the Soviet Union distributed factories across uh, the Soviet Union across Soviet Russia uh, left a large number of um, factories and industrial facilities in towns in Siberia and the Urals region and the Far East, where there was only one industry in town. And so when those industries face economic um, pressure, when they uh, face pressure to, to lay off employees, it's not just an economic issue, it's a social crisis for the towns in question, since there's often no other source of employment. And many of uh, the, the firms in question are are going to be facing or already facing some substantial pressure from the economic downturn. And Russian research institutes that have looked at looked into the issue have uh, found that depending on how you um, classify them, at least half of, of these cities uh, will face a really substantial effect um, from the sanctions in place. And so these geographies are potential sites where there could be not only economic issues, but also social and political pressure that results from them. Um, but more broadly than that, across Russian society, what we've uh, seen is um, that the the government's strategy to respond to the um, to the shock of sanctions and the economic downturn is going to be to uh, push the cost when necessary onto the populace by letting living standards decline in inflation adjusted terms, and I think eventually uh, in letting wages decline as well. And in manufacturing, will be a place where I think we'll see that. Uh, more pronounced than other sectors of the Russian economy, Russian economy, simply because manufacturing is more exposed to the downturn uh, than other sectors. So you mentioned the political consequences. How severe will those be? You already said that you think the pressure from the oligarchs won't be um, that effective on changing Putin. Is the same true for the pressure on the population at large? Well, I think this is an open question. Um, the, the lesson of the past decade is that the Russian populace is willing to tolerate declining living standards. If you adjust for inflation, uh, disposable incomes are below where they were one decade ago, um, which is a pretty bad economic track record. Um, but the government's had no real issue managing that thus far. It's had to tighten repression uh, to a certain extent, but there haven't been any large political uh, counter reactions. Now, I think the question is, we've already had a decade of declining real incomes. Um, the decline we're going to see this year and next year will be uh, on top of this decade of decline and the magnitude will be a lot larger. And so I think there is more concern than previously in Russian elite circles about managing um, the the working class in Russia, managing the middle classes uh, in a context of a stagnating or declining economy. But whether this is likely to lead to uh, large-scale protest movements, I'm, I'm still somewhat skeptical. Um, we've, we haven't seen any evidence of this emerging. There's been no large-scale protests in Russia at the national level in over a decade. Uh, and I think we're we remain to we're in waiting mode to see if uh, what in fact does materialize. But the evidence thus far, I think, suggests that uh, insofar as there is dissatisfaction with the economy, it will be manifested at the elite level rather than the popular level. Um, right now, we've seen very little evidence at either level of dissatisfaction leading into some sort of political pressure on the government to change course. 
In fact, a lot of people have been voting with their feet, right? The, a lot of the intelligentsia and the elites have been leaving when they can. What's the effect of this brain drain on Russia in the short run or in the long run? That's right. It's a big issue. There's, there's not really great data on the numbers of Russians who have left. Uh, and of those of, who have left, we don't know yet uh, what percentage will, uh, will return or what percentage have left permanently. But by any metric, I think uh, the numbers are substantial. And all the evidence that we do have suggests that uh, those who have left are disproportionately well-educated, have higher incomes uh, from the larger cities, um, and therefore their uh, departure will mean a larger economic loss for Russia. Um, so the long-term cost, I think, is, is quite substantial. It's hard to put a number on given the uncertainties involved, but it's real. And I, I think one of, the, um, one of the, the saddest parts of the Russian government's strategy on this issue is that uh, the Russian government, I think, realizes that the great error the Soviet Union made was to keep the populace bottled up in the Soviet Union and didn't let them leave for a long time. And the current government in Russia thinks the best strategy is to let anyone who wants to leave, leave, take the economic cost that comes with it. But uh, they're left at home with a population that's more quiescent because the intelligentsia and the types of people who would be most likely to mobilize politically uh, now live in Berlin or London or San Francisco. Chris, what about the countries that aren't participating in the sanctions? China, I guess India to a certain extent. What role are they having? Are they helping to rescue the Russian economy? And how big a rescue can they actually provide to it? I don't think I'd look at it uh, like rescuing. If, if you look at trade flows between China, between Turkey, between India, um, what you'll find is that these countries' exports to Russia um, have declined dramatically uh, when you adjust for seasonal factors in the case of Turkey. Um, the decline, for example, in Chinese exports to Russia is roughly uh, the same as the decline uh, of, of European exports uh, in percentage terms. So it, in fact, I think uh, regardless of where the located companies are responding to the risk of sanctions uh, and also responding to the economic downturn in Russia in comparable ways. I think where, um, where you've seen countries step in and establish new relationships with Russia that have been helpful uh, to Russia uh, is in terms of buying Russian energy products. And in particular, as Europe has begun to prepare to reduce its purchases of Russian um, oil and, and oil products, India in particular has stepped up as a buyer of Russian oil. And that's been valuable to Russia um, because it gives Russia a customer for its oil. Uh, the Indians, I think, have uh, negotiated a pretty tough bargain with Russia, which is why Russia is selling a lot of its oil at a discount. And according to recent news reports, Russia is actually beginning to offer long-range uh, long-term oil contracts at 30% discount to market prices, which uh, suggests that Russia's current customers are negotiating pretty good deals uh, with Russia at substantial cost to the Russian uh, government and Russian oil firms um, because they're taking advantage of the sanctions environment, taking advantage of the fact that Russia has a really bad negotiating position right now and driving a hard bargain uh, when it comes to buying Russian oil. So I don't think this is an Indian rescue, uh, for example, of 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 Russia's economy. Certainly, it's it's not done with Russia's interests in mind, but rather the interests of Indian oil consumers. Well, Chris, this is obviously an evolving issue. Um, I appreciated that you spoke with me in March about this at the outset and that you're taking the time to speak with me again today about something that is really important for 
not just the world economy, but the world political system as well. So thanks again for joining me today, Chris. Thanks for having me. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.